0: monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 40, May 2021. Reading to children. A conversation with Mem Fox. Hi, Paul Meyer here. Welcome. Before getting into the main topic for this month, I'd like to recognize and thank all the various indices, channels and distributors who make this podcast available. The podcast is now more than three years old and is currently available on more than a dozen podcast platforms and indices including iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbay, Blueberry, Podbean, Podtail, Podcast Addict, Listen Notes and Player FM. That's a mouthful. But regardless of how you listen, thank you for listening. Keep in mind however that if you listen to the podcast on one of those services, you might not be getting all the same information as those who listen directly on paulmeyer.com. So I would encourage you to visit the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. Simply go to paulmeyer.com, select the Other Services tab on the menu bar, click on In a Matter of Speaking, and then pick the episode you want. In many instances, those individual podcast pages contain extra material, such as guest biographies, pictures, texts, and links. Also in the news, after a brief absence, my International Phonetic Alphabet Interactive Charts are back online. Eric Armstrong and I built them back in 2004 using Flash, but Flash is now defunct. But Eric found a brilliant way around that, and the charts are back in their full glory. Thanks, Eric. You can also use the charts on his site at York University, Toronto. The charts are free. On Polmeyer.com the IPA charts tab is right there on the menu bar, accessible from any internet connected device. Use a computer or larger mobile device for the best experience. Now, on with the show. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up.
1: People are often asked what I guess what, what their earliest memory is. My earliest memory, I must have been maybe three or four at the time, and um, it's memory of my grandfather, who was, must have been about ninety three at the time because when he was he was he died at, at the age of ninety six
0: If you guessed Ireland, congratulations it was ideas Ireland nine contributed by Geraldine Cook, senior editor for Australia. The subject was born and raised in Cork but had moved to Melbourne four years before Professor Cook recorded him. Can you hear any Australian sounds in his speech? To hear the whole recording, just go to the Ireland page on the Europe page at dialectsarchive.com. Now here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? I think seven or eight years in a row I was in Greece. So because my father was a Latin and Greek teacher And um, I really enjoyed that. So we had a little really fish, fisher, fisher village, or what to say. Get the answer next time. My guest today is one of the world's best loved children's book authors, Mem Fox. She and I are old chums. We were at drama school together. We went our separate ways after graduation, she returning to Australia as I went my way, making the USA my base eventually. Her books are popular all over the world. They've been translated into dozens of languages. So, Ma'am Fox, we haven't spoken in 53 years. Do you realize that?
1: Well, I knew it was a long time, but my maths is so bad that I couldn't take 1968 from <laughs> 2021. <laughs>
0: We both trained at one of the most prestigious drama schools in England. You were born in Melbourne. You went to Africa and then came to London. And uh, we trained together for three years at the Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama. I think it's got a different name now, but that was what we called it then.
1: Well, I absolutely know. And I often say to people, I could not have become the children's writer I've become had I not gone to drama school, had I not learnt the finest of the English language by heart. The sense of rhythm of language that I received in those three years was an incomparable training.
0: When I tell people that we had verse speaking classes, (laughs) four or five of us in a small group, every term for three years, they don't believe it. Is that true? Do we do that much?
1: It is, it it, is, it absolutely is. It wasn't always the same person. I remember three. One man, a woman who was seemed very old to us at the time, but was probably in her 60s. She seemed like 100 years old, named Mona Swan. Oh, she one was of my very
0: favorites. Mona amazing. Swan.
1: Amazing.
0: So, when you're writing one of your wonderful children's stories, I, you think back to Mona Swan at the Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama and The rhythms come out of you, don't they? The rhythms are there.
1: Absolutely. And uh, there's a particular book of mine called Koala Lou. Every time I read Koala Lou, I remember Rose Bruford herself, the founder and the director of the drama school. I remember her saying there are six things that you can do to make your voice more interesting. And the author will tell you which one of those six things you should be using. So it's loud and soft and fast and slow, and high and low. I cannot get rid of it, Paul, thank God, I can't get rid of it. You know, her voice is in my head all the time when I'm doing those things.
0: She was a remarkable woman.
1: Remarkable.
0: So what else about our training all those many, many years ago has stood you in good stead as a children's book writer?
1: The ability to be brief, I think, has also come from that, to say, a lot in a a few words. I'm I'm taking one verse from the Bible, which is just ridiculous, but Jesus wept. You know, that's Mm. that's a Mm. sentence, you know, that's two words. And what it conveys is enormous. So saying things in the best possible way, you know, I keep coming back to the rhythm. There has to be a certain beat between the first capital letter and the first comma. There has to be a certain calming beat. And if one syllable is out of place, mm-hmm. it's like driving over a rough dirt road instead of driving over a beautiful, smooth highway. You know. So the first, uh, the first couple of lines of Possum Magic, my most famous book, go like this. Once upon a time, but not very long ago, Deep in the Australian bush lived two possums. Their names were Hush and Grandma Poss. I couldn't have done that without that training.
0: You have to write it and then speak it. And the the speaking of it uh, lets you know if there's anything out of place or if there's something that's too much.
1: I have to say that... I'm a very talkative writer. I, t- I talk to myself all the time. I read aloud a-, a phrase and then I add it to the next phrase. Then I go from the beginning and read down to the end of that bit. It is a constant, constant hearing of the music of language.
0: A little bit of that has gone from our culture. I was so amazed and delighted instinctively when I learned, not so long ago, that to be in one's closet as a 17th, 18th century reader and to read for one's own enjoyment, what we would now do silently, they did aloud. Isn't that an astonishment?
1: Well, I didn't know that. How amazing.
0: So it was an oral experience, even when the ma- majority of the citizenry became literate.
1: Yes, to, they read to, aloud.
0: They read aloud. And I think that just put everything in perspective for me when I learned that.
1: Right. <laughs> How absolutely amazing. That's why, probably, those early texts, like the King James Bible, were written in the way that they were, because they read it out so well exactly but i think one of the reasons why the bible was written in the rhythm that it was written in was because it was easy to learn
0: rhythm is a mnemonic device isn't it if you're teaching an illiterate citizenry uh, and you want them to remember things it's memorable you know hobom was written in verse because it yes. was it was made it transmissible in purity you know you didn't want to change it because you'd know when you put in an extra syllable or dropped one, because the rhythm would tell you that.
1: Yes. I would love to know from the Islamic perspective if the Quran is like that as well, because children learn the Quran off by heart.
0: It's got to be surely as a species, as a storytelling species, we've got that deep instinct for rhythm. And, and, And you working with children, you know even before they can speak, they're relating to rhythms.
1: And the rhythm is soothing, Paul. You know, it's very calming. If a child is uh, fractious and, and annoying other people, in a, say in a dentist's room or something, the instant you start to read a children's book that's well-written, there is a complete bursting of the balloon and a calming down and a restfulness and a piece, and the child is just mesmerized.
0: I wonder if it's because rhythmic writing restores pattern and order to the chaos. We are a pattern-seeking and a pattern-recognizing species, you know. We desire order, we desire pattern. Perhaps it's a, a survival instinct, if everything in the landscape is rhythmic and as it should be, then there's a certain safety in that. So the the rhythm of verse or the rhythm of good prose perhaps restores that sense of, of patternedness and order to the chaotic universe.
1: I honestly believe that. We have the rhythm of the tides. We have the sun and the moon changing places all the time in the same way. Children are automatically rocked, you know, when they're little. I mean, that's why cradles were invented that, that rocked. The rocking, the the sense of rhythm, it is safety, Paul. It's exactly what you said.
0: Rocked by baby you, it, on the treetop. When yes. the wind blows, the cradle will rock. And the, the, there's a rocking rhythm in that, isn't there?
1: there? There is. I wish often just on a plane, for example, you know, with a with a fractious child, I just want to go down and say to the parents, please could I just have this baby for a moment? Because when you whisper in the ear, you know, it is, it's it's sort of baby whispering, but it's the rhythm of what you're saying. It's not just your voice. I remember a hilarious uh, episode. Malcolm and I were having coffee. We were outside a cafe and a little girl was running away from her mother. She was about three. She was running away from her mother, yelling her head off. Her mother caught up to her just beside where we were sitting and lifted her off the ground and saw that I was there and I am horrifyingly recognisable in my own community. And she said to the child who was still yelling, she said, you wouldn't be yelling in front of your favourite author, would you? The -hmm. child looked at me and I said, here is the blue sheep and here is the red sheep. Here is the bath sheep and here is the bed sheep, but where is the green sheep? And that child was immediately <laughs> calmed. <laughs> you know, it was a book, I, I, I chose that book because it's the most popular uh, of the books that I have written for young children, uh, Where is the Green Sheep? And uh, she knew it, of course, but it was the safety of the rhythm. It just burst her balloon, and her eyes were wide, and they moved on. It was lovely.
0: And the retelling, every time a story is retold, there's the memory of the previous tellings. and
1: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: It, it, uh, it anchors exactly. you, doesn't it? It anchors it the child. Tell me what you know scientifically about the youngest that you, you know, would read to a child from the day he or she is born?
1: I give people a day to recover and to realize that they're parents. But really, the day after this, there's no point in waiting. I mean, why, why wait? My grandson was born 10 weeks premature, so he was in a humid crib in the hospital for two and a half months after he was born. And every day I would go to the hospital, open one of those little round windows on the humid crib, put my mouth very close to his ears, and read him the same story, called Whoever You Are, again and again and again, every single day for two and a half months, so that he would know that when he heard my voice, he would be very, very safe and Mm. very loved. I also know that in the first year of life, children's brains grow more than they do at any time in the rest of our lives. In fact, the most brain development of all happens in the first four months of life. So when people think, I think I'll wait and I'll read to my child when they can understand language, I'll start reading to them at about three when they can talk quite well. That's crazy. The brain only develops when the five senses are brought into play. You can only develop the the brain through the five senses. And when you're reading to a child, you are holding them. So there is touch. They're seeing the pictures. They're hearing your voice. Sometimes when they're eating the book, they're actually (laughs) tasting the book as well. All of the senses come into play when you're reading to a child. The brain is going nuts. Hmm. And all those synapses are connecting the neurons. The brain is becoming denser and denser. And, you know, the kid is is becoming alert, alive, curious, happy, safe. Why would you wait to do that? You know, kids who are read to endlessly in their first two years of life are pretty fluent by the time they're two and a half. They can talk in long sentences. They can make sense. They understand adult conversation. And, you know, those kids at four are, are talking like high school students. And people say, oh, he talks well, and, and you think, well, you know, he was read to, you know, endlessly. When I say endlessly, I'm begging parents to do it, and, and they think, oh, I haven't got time, I haven't got time. Paul, it's three picture books a night. It's 10 minutes' worth. Mm. If people haven't got 10 minutes to read the same book three times, if they haven't got 10 minutes, I beg them please to have goldfish instead of children.
0: This reminds me of last month's podcast when I was interviewing Joanna Kasdan, the speech-language pathologist. Among the many topics we covered, we talked about children raised in silence. I think it's called the feral child syndrome. Of course, she said that those children who are unfortunately raised that way, you know, they may, may never recover because there's a window of opportunity for language learning and relating it to the sounds. I didn't
1: know that. I'm not surprised. And when that window but closes, if you... That.
0: W- and, uh, you know, obviously there's the the there's the speech formation, but more importantly, there's the language formation. Uh, and it all yeah, happens yeah. M- surprisingly early. Let's read one of your books. You, okay. You, you promised me a part in one of your books.
1: I, I did, Paul. I did. But... So
0: what's the play and what's my part?
1: Well... The book is called Hattie and the Fox. And uh, one of the important things in little kids' books is repetition. And boy, is there repetition in this story? There really, really is. Your part, Paul, is the cow. The cow seems to be absolutely uh, dumb, uh, foolish, stupid, dimwitted in every way. But actually, the cow is the hero is of the, the story. Who saves the day? But are you, you are really. we ready?
0: We're ready. Hattie and the Fox by Mem
1: Fox. Illustrated by Patricia Mullins. Hattie was a big black hen. One morning she looked up and said, Goodness gracious me, I can see a nose in the bushes. Good grief, said the goose, well, well, said the pig, who cares, said the sheep, now what, said the horse.
0: What next, said the cow.
1: And Hattie said, goodness gracious me, I can see a nose and two eyes in the bushes. Good grief, said the goose, well, well, said the pig, who cares, said the sheep, so what, said the horse.
0: What next, said the cow.
1: And Hattie said, goodness gracious me, I can see a nose, two eyes, and two ears in the bushes. Good grief, said the goose, well, well, said the pig, who cares, said the sheep, so what, said the horse?
0: What next, said the cow.
1: And Hattie said, goodness gracious me, I can see a nose, two eyes, two ears, and two legs in the bushes. Good grief, said the goose. Well, well, said the pig. You care, said the sheep. So what, said the horse?
0: What next, said the cow.
1: And Hattie said, goodness gracious me, I can see a nose, two eyes, two ears, four legs, and a body in the bushes. Good. Grief, said the goose. Well, well, said the pig. who can't, said the sheep. So what, said the horse?
0: What next? said the cow.
1: And Hattie said, Goodness gracious me, I can see a nose, two eyes, two ears, four legs, a body, and a tail in the bushes. It's a fox, it's a fox. And she flew very quickly into a nearby tree. Oh no, said the goose. Dear me, said the pig. Oh dear, said the sheep. Oh, help, said the horse.
0: But the cow said, Moo! So loudly the fox was frightened and ran away.
1: And they were all so surprised that none of them said anything for a very long
0: time. <laughs> this is the highlight of my career. A part in a men fox story.
1: That last line. It just makes me laugh so much because it brings back drama school completely, all those, you know, <laughs> more years ago because Rose Bruford, when she was teaching us storytelling, because that was another thing that we did, if you remember. Oh, yes. Uh, we, we actually told stories rather than reading them. And she said the first line and the last line are incredibly important. The first line is the bait and the last line is tying the knot in it. And the last line has to, I think she described it as a rubber band lying on the on the page and it has to be stretched to its absolute limit. It has to be said very, very, very slowly so that when you finish, the atmosphere is, there's like a feather falling to the floor rather than a golf ball. You know, it, it's a very slow, beautiful, restful finish. And every time I read the last sentence, of any of my books, I do it in exactly the same way. You know, the training is in the marrow of my bones.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's so delightful to hear you do short phrases with long pauses. And they were all so surprised that none of them said anything for a very long time. I loved that. I love what perfect. you did with that. Oh,
1: that was perfect. <laughs>
0: Stretch the silence until it almost breaks, right? I mean, it's an old theatrical trick, isn't it? It is. Make them wait. Make them wait.
1: Make them wait.
0: Done any um, children's theatre?
1: No. Um, um, I went to drama school, obviously, because I wanted to be an actress. I was quite desperate to be an actress. All of us were, I mean... Why were we there? Of course we all wanted to. And a lot of us went
0: into theatre and education. and, the, and those, Yes, yeah.
1: indeed, because there was the teaching component as well, which was compulsory, thank goodness. Yes. Um, so many of us did that. In, I think, the beginning of July 1968, which was the month that we finished drama school after three years, I wrote in my journal... I hope I haven't wasted three years. I don't want to be an actress. I want to be a writer. Hmm. And of course, I only know now looking back that far from being wasted three years, it was the crucial three years that made me who I I am.
0: Well, the ethos was that you will be a better teacher if you're an actor. You'll be a better actor if you're a teacher if you become a director you will be a better actor if you become an actor you'll be a better director so the the multiplicity of disciplines that we were taught has always stayed with me that you should always be everything and obviously I don't know how often you read your own books you make audio books of your own books but you're so brilliant at it of course you're still acting for goodness sakes. You are a world-travelled activist and advocate for children's literacy. Tell us a little bit about, about your lifelong campaign to marry the children's book writing with literacy advocacy.
1: I had been teaching drama for eight years uh, to teachers and to teaching them exactly the things that you and I were taught. And then I, I caught an absolute fascination with the way children learn to read through our own daughter learning to read without any lessons at the age of four. So she started school at four and a half and she was reading within two weeks. And I said to the teacher, you know, how staggered we were and what was her method. She looked at me as if I was crazy and said, well, you read to her, didn't you? And I said, we both did, of course we did. And she said, well, there you go then. And she turned and walked away, as if that was the secret. And that sentence, well, there you go, it changed my life. So I retrained in literacy and it became my passion because if you can't read, you have so few choices in life. If you can read, you have choices, You can choose, for example, not to read. I don't mind if people don't read. I mind if people can't read. Mm -hmm. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. The figures of people in jail, for example, you know, 80% of them have poor literacy. People who read well are, are healthier. Isn't that amazing? Because they understand, you know, what the health implications are of everything that we do, that we eat and so on. They understand medication and and how to take it and when to take it and why to take it. There are hundreds of reasons why we need to be able to learn to read. The the importance of, of being able to be a reader is something that I got really passionate about, almost angry about. And one of the ways kids learn to read more easily is if they can speak by the time they get to school. It's much more important, Paul, for children to be able to be fluent in language when they are five years old and starting to learn to read than it is for them to know the alphabet or the sounds of the alphabet. It is the language. It's the grammar. It's the vocabulary. It's being able to put words together in long sentences, to have conversations with people at the age of five. it's, It's so huge, it's almost inexplicable. Indeed. So that's, that, was, that became my passion.
0: I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment and, and think back in our short human history, comparatively recently, when mass literacy became the norm or the goal or the aspiration of societies. And I'm thinking back to those pre-literate times when perhaps just a very few, perhaps the priestly caste had the power to read. Uh, but everybody spoke, of course, because you don't need training to speak. If you are spoken to, you will learn to speak. It's ingrained. But learning to read is a skill that's learned and has to be taught. So uh, here's a provocative question for you, Mem: What have we sacrificed with mass literacy? What advantages did a pre-literate society have over a literate society?
1: We did lose something. You know, the difference for me when I'm reading a story, this is, this is the difference. When I'm reading a story to children and my communication is cut off every time I look down to read the next word. So I'm cut off, I, I, I connect, then I disconnect because I'm looking down, then I connect, then I am disconnect because I'm looking down at the words. Whereas in the past when there was only one storyteller, there was a storyteller and there was an audience. Whether it was a yeah, the, ra- the raps,
0: the, the rhapsode in ancient Greece, for example.
1: Oh, the, you know the there is a kind of rapture in the the bonding, uh, Paul, between the audience and the speaker, the humanity, the closeness, the feeling of belonging.
0: It's religious communion, isn't it?
1: It absolutely is, and we we did lose that. Mm-hmm. I, I started the storytelling association of South Australia the state that I live in because I needed that to be kept alive
0: and even after mass literacy came on the scene the stories that would have been told orally because the rapso didn't read were still communicated orally we never gathered people together in large groups and read to them we the actors learned the lines
1: yes and, you know, when I grew up in Africa, as you know, I grew up on a mission, and there was a mission school, which I attended in my first year of schooling, until the regime found out that there was a white child in a black school and whipped me out. Anyway, in the African school that I started school in, we didn't have books. We were not read to, but my goodness, we sang, we chanted, we listened endlessly to stories, we were drowned in language the most beautiful language. And of course, you know, the, because children had so much language coming at them from adults who were telling them stories about the past, about, for example, in Australia, the, the Dreamtime stories mm. uh, from the Aboriginal people, you know, these these stories were going into children's ears and and giving them language. They need language before they start to learn to read, but they had language anyway. You know, they had language even if they didn't have books. And, you know, and African children you know, were just as literate, you know, by the time they were in year four or whatever, fourth grade, you know, as a white child was.
0: And isn't it tragic that one of the losses from mass literacy is the fact that you don't have to remember stuff. Before a society is literate, of course, all the information of the tribe is, is stored in people's brains, is transmitted from one generation to the next orally and remembered. And so if the society survives, it's because the stories have been told over and over and over again, perhaps uh, with very little variation. But now that we can store anything we need to know in devices external to our bodies, you know, surely that's a tragic loss.
1: It really is a tragic loss. And I, in my later life, (laughs) Like in the last five years, I've been, you know, I'm so aware that people around me, even younger than I am, and I'm 75, are losing their memories. And it, it's, it's it's just dreadful. I decided that I would start to learn poetry again, uh, you know, just to test myself, but also to fix this beautiful language in my brain. I wanted it there.
0: And just like people with advanced dementia can remember music and they come to life when there's dancing or, or singing, You've bypassed that part of the brain that perhaps is affected first and, and, and the memorised poetry and the memorised stuff survives somehow. I believe I'm right in saying You that. are right.
1: I um, used to visit my father every evening. His old people's home was very close to where we live. And I was able to go there and, and feed him at night. The old people would all sit at you know, round tables and I got to know them very well. So sometimes I would, just to fill in the space and the time, sometimes I would recite poetry to them and it would stop them from repeating the same line over and over again. They would stop at that point because I would be speaking something rhythmic and calming. Then I would start singing just, you know, all those boring (laughs) songs, those old songs like, you know, Early One Morning and, you know, The Red River Valley. I mean, all of those songs that I grew up with The old people who couldn't speak and had no memory, they could all sing the words of Mm. the songs. I was staggered by that. Yes. It was just beautiful.
0: Let's close with a reading from one of your books. Can you do that?
1: I can, Paul. This book is called Whoever You Are. This book is illustrated by uh, Leslie Storb who is an American illustrator. Extraordinary, just beautiful. And this is how it goes. Little one, whoever you are, wherever you are, there are little ones just like you all over the world. Their skin may be different from yours and their homes may be different from yours. Their schools may be different from yours and their lands may be different from yours, their lives may be different from yours, and their words may be very different from yours, but inside their hearts are just like yours, whoever they are, wherever they are, all over the world. Their smiles are like yours, and they laugh just like you. Their hurts are like yours, And they cry like you, too, whoever they are, wherever they are, all over the world. Little one, when you are older and when you are grown, you may be different and they may be different, wherever you are, wherever they are, in this big wide world. But remember this, joys are the same and love is the same. Pain is the same, and blood is the same. Smiles are the same, and hearts are just the same, wherever they are, wherever you are, wherever we are, all over the world.
0: Mam Fox, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Paul.
0: And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Mem Fox. To learn more about her, please see the webpage on Paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at dialectpaul. My guest next month is Professor Paul DeLacy. We'll be talking about his life's research into glossolalia, also known as Xenoglossia or Xenolalia. Fascinating topic. See you next time in a manner of speaking.